Good morning, everyone. I'm sure glad to see all of you and to have the opportunity to share at the Master's College. We have been following the birth, shall we say, or the rebirth of this college with a great deal of interest and are thankful to the Lord for what has been happening. I've also been interested in this whole subject that has come and which you have been speaking about uh, here, the subject of integrity. And I would like to share something with you that I hope will be valuable to you to think about and look back upon in the future and say, let's see, where am I in this particular structure? If you have a piece of paper and you can see well enough as these lights come up to make a note, I would like you to draw a little flight of stairs, just a small flight of stairs. Four steps is all you need. And on each one of those steps, I'm going to ask you to write something that will relate to the 13th chapter of Romans. I love the 13th chapter of Romans because it tells you how to be a good Christian in any nation in the world. Doesn't matter where. I've had people ask me how I could be a missionary as I was in the Republic of South Africa under the system of apartheid. How in the world can you do it? And uh, there's a way to do it. There surely is. And I shall uh, perhaps share a little bit more about that in a few moments. But I want you to notice what the 13th chapter of Romans has to say about why we keep the rules. Why we keep the rules. Why be a faithful and honest citizen. A man of integrity. One of my boys was away at college and he wrote a rather unusual letter to me one time. I was really surprised because he's a fellow that uh, always has some difficulty with rules. I don't know whether you do. But he wrote to me and he said, you know, I was having some time in the Word and I was reading in the first chapters of Genesis and it struck me that when God told Adam and Eve not to eat of that tree, he never told them why not. And when the devil tempted him, tempted them to take of the fruit, he told them why they should. That there was plenty more for them to do, and that uh, they could get along without that one tree. But there was no logic to the rule. There was no logic to the rule. No logic to tree to cheer the collapses either, I guess. That's, that's really getting let down. <laughs> now there's a chair with no integrity. <laughs> I hope you didn't get hurt. We'll find another place to sit. Okay. So what he said to me was this. He said, sometimes I really get upset about the rules here at the school because they don't make any sense to me. And all of a sudden I began to realize that I have freedoms that I can't fit into all my time frame anyhow so I won't worry about the things that are rules that I don't understand and I won't ask why I'll just concentrate on the things that I can do and accept even the things that don't seem to make sense to me a wise way to handle rules 
Notice what he says in verse, chapter 13. Let every person be subject in subjection to the government authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those who ex- which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who he resists has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what's good. And you will have praise of the same. For it's a minister of God for you for good. If you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it's a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. One good reason. Put it on the first step, the lowest step. One good reason to obey rules. One good reason to be a man of integrity who has put himself under authority is... If you don't, you'll get punished. The word is wrath. You are, you behave with integrity with regard to authority because of wrath. I don't park where it says no parking because if I do, I might get a ticket. It's one good reason. But then notice what he says in verse 5, where, for it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Put that on the second line, because of conscience. I should keep my conscience so tenderized, it's easy to let it get tough and not be hurt. I should keep my conscience so tenderized that it hurts when I break the rule, whether that's a school rule or whether it's one of God's laws or whatever it is, my conscience should bother me. Now, when I go and I park my car here, where it's only for handicapped, I'm thinking of something besides just the fact that I'll get a $20 fine for parking there. I think of the fact that somebody that's in a walker is going to have to park way down there and struggle his way into the store. And my conscience says I'd feel bad if I came back to the handicapped in my running shoes, galloping for the car, and saw this fellow working his way up because I parked where he could have. Now conscience is working, not just wrath. Look at verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Now put that on the third step, will you? Because of love. Because I care about somebody. Because my behavior may do something to build into the life of another person. Because I have a contribution to make on earth. And so I will behave with integrity as regards my obligations, my accountability, whatever authority is over me, God or anyone else. Because of what I may build into someone someone else's life by doing that. God gave us... Two children when we went to Africa on our first term, we came home on a furlough, went out for the second time, God gave us two more children. We came home on a furlough, we went back, had a third term. Well, we have three sons and they each have a sister. Now they all have the same sister. <laughs> we didn't have any more that third time. But these four kids, well, my oldest boy says we're Afro-Americans who were all born in Africa. So, uh, oh, I always love to tell that little story, but now I've forgotten why I did. I'll have to work on that one. Do you ever have your mind run like that? It's what happens when you get old, you know, it runs away from you. 
anyway. We're talking about love one another. We do it because of love. Because of love. Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. Uh, it'll come back. You are concerned for somebody else. Now you're going to build into their life. You're going to build into their life. You're not just going to keep a clear conscience. You're not just going to avoid the fine or the penalty uh, for having done wrong. Now you're going to build into somebody else. There's a fourth one. There's a fourth one. I want you to move ahead. My kids will come back. Verse 14. Now accept... Wait a minute. Beg your pardon. It's in chapter 14. No. Verse 14. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Chapter 13, verse 14, okay? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Now, you do it because of the Lord Jesus Christ. For wrath's sake, for conscience' sake, for love's sake, for Jesus' sake. Now, you're not going to offend God. Your concern is not just that you might get fined. Your concern is not just that your conscience is going to bother you. Your concern is not just that this is not going to help somebody. Your concern is that God is concerned about what you do. I think that as you go through life the rest of this week, if you were to keep this in mind, you may want to keep it in mind for a long time, and you find yourself making decisions you will be able to reach back and say, I wonder which level I'm on. Am I doing this just because of wrath? Or am I doing it because of love? Am I doing this just because of my conscience? Am I doing it because of the Lord Jesus Christ? I want you to notice that whenever you make a decision on the basis of conscience, you are making it on the basis of a higher order than just wrath. That when you're doing it on the basis of what it will do to another person, that's a decision of a higher order than the one below it. And when you do it for God, it's one step higher. Think about it. Ponder it. And now turn with me to the 119th Psalm. Because I have something I'd like to say to you from the 119th Psalm. I believe we not only should be faithful to responsibilities to which we are obligated, but that we ought to make ourselves obligated, make ourselves accountable, declare ourselves. Some people avoid the problem of integrity by never making anybody, God or anybody else, any promise about what they will be. And by avoiding making any promises, then they don't have any problem with keeping the promises. But listen to what the psalmist says in verse 33 of Psalm 119. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Teach me the way, and I'll keep it. Notice that he doesn't say, teach me the way, and I'll decide whether I can hack it or not. Teach me the way, and then I'll kind of weigh all the case, all the circumstances, and decide whether I think I could make it or not. But Lord, you teach me the way. Here's my promise. I will keep it. 
I can't think of anything that will develop integrity in a person any more than to make God a promise and then fulfill it. You can escape by not making any promises. And then you can just glide through life without any responsibilities. He goes on in verse 34, he says, Give me understanding that I may observe thy law and keep it with all my heart. If you will help me to understand it, I will keep it. Right now, I don't understand it. Once I understand it, you have my promise. I will do it. I don't know what you have planned for me, God, but tomorrow, when I find out what that is, I'm not going to welch on my promise. Here it is. I'll do it. You open the door, I'll walk through it. I'm going to take a step and believe you to put some ground under my feet. And it's going to happen. Verse 35. Make me walk in the path of thy commandments, for I delight in it. Discipline, discipline me to go the way you want me to go, because that is the thing that I delight in. Paul said to the Colossians, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. That means our affections are directional. The thing that we like, the thing that we enjoy, the thing that occupies our minds all the time, the most consuming passions that we have are directional. They don't have to control us, we can control them. Set your affections, he says then, on things which are above. I don't think that we ought to be then so earthly minded, heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. I don't think we ought to be so far from everything that's happening around us that we walk in some kind of a cloud and don't understand what's going on around us. But I do think that we ought to set our affections mainly on things that are above. That we can walk through life looking at a farther goal than what's happening here. Entertainment, music, uh, sport, anything. We can set our affections higher and be involved with these and let them control, let them be under the control of where our affections are established. I delight in doing what you want me to do. That's what he says. And finally, in verse 36, incline my heart to thy testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Bend me the right way. Every one of us is born with a bent toward evil. I know that that's not the common belief of, of uh, the current psychology of today. It certainly isn't what's being taught in the public schools or the universities. It isn't predominant anywhere in the moral understanding of the monolithic teachings of our country today. But it's still the teaching of the Word of God. That man is born with this bent toward evil. And we have to continuously say, Lord, incline my heart that way and not this way. I don't want to go that way. So you see, this has to do with doctrine in verse 33, discernment in verse 34, discipline in verse 35, and desire in verse 36. And a man of integrity says to God, in all these areas, you have my promise. You have my promise. I knew two little guys in New England where I grew up who uh, grew up in a church that had as its doctrine something like this, the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, and the neighborhood of Boston. It didn't mean very much. They didn't know very much. They were good kids. They always went to Sunday school, but not much happened there. 
They went away to a boys' camp. They were 10 and 11 years old. They heard the gospel for the first time. It sounded so real, so logical. Both of them just walked forward, gave their hearts to Christ, and came home and found that there was nobody at home that understood what they were talking about when they said they were born again. They went back to the camp the next year. And they heard about the possibility of missionary service overseas. And they thought, boy, that would be a great thing. If God would let me do that, I'd like to do that. And somebody said, all right, anybody who wants to promise God that he'll be a missionary, come walk down front here. And those two little fellows did that. The older one went first, the younger one followed him. And they stood there and made a promise. Before those people and before God, if you'll let me, Lord, I'll go anywhere in the world. You know, from that point on, those two never thought about doing anything else. They kept their promise. The oldest one went to Korea in 1956, was first chief engineer on radio station HLKX, which still broadcasts into China, Siberia, North Korea. He spent his life reaching China and Siberia and North Korea for Jesus Christ and still involved in it. He's an older man now. He's my older brother. See, I was a little guy that followed. And one of the reasons that I went to the mission field is because I made a promise to God. It never occurred to me that I would fail. I didn't worry about that. You know, when Paul came back after he'd been involved in some ministry, he said, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has done through me. So you see, that's the way you avoid failure. You don't plan to go out there and then come back and say, I made it or I did it. You plan to come back and say, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has done through me. You go out to see what He will do through you. And I'd like to challenge your heart for a world that is not going to hear about our Savior unless some people who are prepared to prepare themselves make a promise to God and then follow through. When our forefathers landed in this country, there were half a billion people in the world. Two hundred years later, there were a full billion. Eighty years later, there were two billion. Thirty-five years later, there were three billion. Sixteen years later, there were four billion. And then in nine years, barely nine years, five billion. And the way it's going now, the sixth billion will be on us in little more than five years. Do you see how it's going? Nowhere in the world are we reaching men and women for Christ anywhere near as fast as the population is growing. We are in danger of being inundated by sheer volume of people who have no opportunity to hear of Jesus Christ. And the only way anything is going to happen about that is as God touches the hearts of people of integrity who will say, God, I'll make you a promise. You teach me the way, and then I'll walk in it. When I told God I'd go to the mission field, I had no idea he'd send me to Africa. When I went to Africa, there were only four independent nations in the country, on the continent. And today there are over 50. We've watched 400 years of colonial expansion swept back in the 36 years that I've been associated with Africa. A whole new change. And right now with the ruckus that's going on in the Republic of South Africa, we have never seen people more open to the gospel than they are right now. It's a wide open opportunity. But this world population that needs Jesus Christ is all very different from most of us here. For one thing, they speak 5,445 different languages. 
And did you know, when I first began talking like this about some of these figures, I used to say that about 9% of the world's population understands English. I mean, all of North America. And having made that promise, I trust you to have the integrity to follow through. Thanks for the privilege of being with you. As the President has already suggested, anyone who has traveled the world like I have, especially over the last 18 years in about 60 different countries, has a few war stories. I haven't had time for them this morning. I'll be glad to answer questions and share a few experiences, some of the great openings that God has given us around the world, places where things are happening that you wouldn't believe, where God is at work and where we're excited to see more and more people getting involved as we grow into all these new opportunities. I mentioned at the seminary yesterday morning that we have just last week sent our first six missionaries into the Philippines. And a young man came up to speak to me to tell me that he had come back from the Philippines from a short term, planning to find the right mission to go back to the Philippines with. And the Spirit of God has brought us together. We think that it's going to be something that's going to be a lifelong experience for us together. May God do that for you in the years ahead as you seek His will. Let's thank Dr. Winchell. Why do you speak like that? You see, what I've done is I have, gre- I have greeted him with dignity and I have honored him with the term, my father. I'm a younger man. He's an older man. He said, Where do you come from? You speak Zulu like that. I come from over the ocean. How? come from overseas and you speak my language. I ask him where he comes from. He says, I come from up in Zululand. Ah. Yes, I'm married. Yes, I've got eight, three died. They're all grown up, they're all married. Oh, do they have children? They have many children. How many? He doesn't remember. He starts asking me about my family. Gasoline? That'll come later. I'm busy walking over the language bridge. You see, I'm about at the point where I can ask him if he knows anything about the Lord Jesus. I can take some time with him and my learning his language has given me entrance where my white face would have kept me out. All of a sudden it doesn't matter that he's black and I'm white. All of a sudden it doesn't matter because he knows that white people in South Africa don't learn Zulu. Then why did this young white man come here and struggle and learn this language? He makes a lot of mistakes. He has an accent. But that doesn't matter. He seems to care. What does it, what motivates this fellow? The integrity of a decision that he made when he was 10 years old. It's not the easiest language in the world to learn, but it sure can be a lot of fun.
You know, when you, when you want to knock on the door of a straw hut, you've got a practical problem. How are you going to knock on straw? Well, the Zulus have a way of doing that. They use the word to knock. So they just stand at a door and they say, that really is a word. It's not just noise. What's uh, Revelation 3.20? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You'll get this a little better if I take this mic off for a minute. And uh, the Revelation 3.20 in Zulu reads like this. When they drop a stone in the water, it doesn't say splash. It says... Now you can almost hear it, you know. You'd understand what I'm saying if I say, Now you know where that one landed, huh? I hit a golf ball like that last week. We have a great little story we tell about a frog. That's the click you make when you tell a horse to get up. One of the tribes in South Africa is the Kosa tribe. You maybe see that name sometimes uh, in, in, uh, in some of the newspaper articles. It's spelled X-O-S-A. It's pronounced Kosa. I have a friend who's studying down at Columbia Bible College right now from Zululand. And his name is Taba. I don't know what they're calling him down there. <laughs> we had another Taba that went to school here in California. And they called him Zaba. But uh, his name is Taba. Well, anyway, frog is ikoko, and to jump is kuma. So when you say the frog jumps, you say ikoko ikuma. It kind of sounds slushy, doesn't it? Like a frog swapping through a swamp or something. Anyway, uh, we tell this little story about the frog ikoko jump, or walking down the road, umguako, and he meets with a, a, a skunk, ikaka. And uh, they talk a little bit, ugutoklisana. And the frog ikoko, he challenges the skunk, ikaka, to jump, kuma. Now, skunks are built to jump, and he shouldn't do this, you know. So, uh, instead, he, uh, well, he decides he'll try it, but he'll do it on some sleeping mats. Amakansi. Amakansi. Small sleeping mats. Amakansi. Amangane. Small sleeping mats alongside the road. Amakansi. Amangane. Etrani. Kongwako. Then he tumbles over. A and he splits open his windpipe. Doesn't make much sense, but it sure makes a lot of fun. <laughs> because your, your windpipe is uko, ko, ko. And to split open is a marvelous word. It also means to, to rip cloth. Ebola. <laughs> Did you imagine what this story sounds like when you put it all together? Peter Piper just pales into insignificance. <laughs> it goes like this. Dr. Provost sort of uh, cajoled me to do that. It may not seem to make too much sense, but listen, friends. I took first year French five times. In my academic years, I was not a good bet to learn another language. But you know what I learned? I learned that learning another language is more of a cultural than an academic experience, more of a social than an academic experience.
that it's what you do when you are faithful to a decision and you believe God and he opens up your heart. And you care enough about somebody to sit and listen to him, imitate him, become like him, become a part of him, and then communicate to him. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, we will be able to do what he asks us to do. Of love, we will be motivated to do what he wants us to do. And of a sound mind, yes, he'll even teach us how to do it. After all my failures, no, not really failures, but not very great successes at French and Latin and Greek. I went to South Africa and found myself in my first term after having studied Zulu in an area where there were no Zulus, so I had to learn Sesotho, and also working amongst the white people who speak Afrikaans, and uh, had to get into that a little bit, and on the gold mines where they use a trade language called Fanagalo, and the only way I could speak to people that uh, spoke so many languages, I carried Bibles in 32 different languages, was to learn this lingua franca so I could get along with them. And all four of them were happening at one time. And I never stopped to think about whether this was a wise thing to do or whether it is even possible. You just did what you had to do. Because you took a step and then God put ground under your feet. And by the time I left, I was speaking two of them conversationally and preaching in the other two. And not because I'm so brilliant, but I believe because I made a commitment. And I said, Lord, you teach me the way. That's the way I'm going to go. I'm going to send you to Africa. You're going to learn four languages. Whoa. No. I'll teach you the way. All right. Here I go. And it happened. It happened. Not because I'm so great, but because I was obedient to what God said. We are not going to reach this generation for Jesus Christ in the English language. The last I heard, 94% of all those who are preaching the gospel are doing so in the English language. The recent growth of the church in China may have changed those statistics somewhat. But I do want you to know, folks, that what is happening over there is infinitesimal by comparison to what has happened in this over-evangelized nation. Not that there isn't more evangelism to be done here. But no nation on the earth, no people in, the, in history of any language group have had the opportunity of the gospel that the English language world has had. And I think we've got some Gentiles. We've got to go out there and reach for Jesus Christ. We've got to take some steps in order to bring them to the Savior. And we have more opportunities before us today than ever before in history. I wish I had the time to tell you about some of the places that we're working and some of the things that are happening. In Japan, for instance, it is North Americans who are planting churches for Jesus Christ. You say, why don't the Japanese do it? Well, there are some practical reasons why. You always thought the best way to evangelize a nation was for the African to, do the, to reach Africans and the Japanese to reach Japanese and uh, Indians to reach Indians. And to some degree that is true. But friends, in some countries, the least likely people to do the evangelism are the ones of that country who are converted. Because they are immediately turned off by their local friends and hated because they have become traitors to their culture and to their religion. 
And the foreigner comes in and he's got a wide open door. Here's a little village in India with a little church of godly people, outcasts. In India's own special brand of apostate, they are kept over here. And here's another little village just two miles away. And these are the high caste people. There's not a soul there who knows Jesus. The least likely person in the world to do evangelism in that city is probably the nearest Christian neighbor. Because these high caste are going to have nothing to do with these low caste. But you know, a foreigner in that community might just have an edge. Some countries, in some countries, a converted Muslim is the least likely person to be able to really reach a Muslim. They hate him from the word go. But if you went, they might just spend several hours talking to you about Jesus Christ and listening to what you have to say. No, there are some tremendous opportunities for us. In some countries, it isn't quite that way. The nationals can do a good job. They just simply are overwhelmed by the task. They are so few that they can't do it. So they're not looking for great white fathers to come and to, uh, to do the job and take control and run the show. They're looking for some brothers that will roll up their sleeves and get alongside. We'd like some people to send into Venezuela that we can put alongside a Venezuelan. And you can go there and say, good morning, brother, what shall we do together? Show me the way. I'm ready. I've learned Spanish now. Not very well. I'm not as old in the Lord as you are. But what can I do to help? And evangelism begins to happen in teams of people who are willing to work together. We're not sending out leaders so much in some countries now as we are brothers who will help. And the only way we get them is when people make a commitment and say, Yes, Lord, you want me, you have me. I make a promise. And then I'll follow through with integrity. I don't know how much you have considered the possibility that God might want you to go to that 91.5% of the world's population that will never understand anything in English. I don't know how much you've thought about that. But if anything has happened in these last few minutes or earlier in your life that makes you feel that God might want you to do that, I want to ask you to make God a promise this morning. I'm going to give you an opportunity to make a decision in a brief invitation we're going to have here just for a few minutes. And this isn't the kind of thing that I expect everybody to come forward for. I don't think you all ought to come. I think you ought to narrow this down to the place where you say, Lord, I think it's altogether possible you might want me overseas. And I'm willing to make a promise to you this morning with regard to that thing. We have a little card. It's called God's Will for My Life. Whatever, whenever, and wherever means away from here. Away from family. Away from all that you're familiar with away from what you like in your own culture to learn a new culture, learn a new language, live with the different people and give your life to them.
Inside it says, my decision, I today declare that Christ is Lord and Master of my life. I therefore will seek to discover God's plan for my life. By His power, I'll be obedient to that plan starting now. Now, any one of you ought to say that, but I want you to say it this morning with regard to your willingness to go overseas if God would have you go. That doesn't mean there isn't anything to be done here. That's why some of you ought to sit right where you are. But if you sense that God would have you make a promise that you will give up what's here in order to live over there, then I would ask you to come and make this decision. There's a place on this card where you can have it witnessed. Now I want to tell you what I'd like you to do about that witness line if you should come. I don't want you to have your roommate witness it. I don't even want you to have your professor witness it. I don't want you to have the dean witness it or the president. I want you to take this to a local church. I want your pastor to witness this. Or the elder of your church. Somebody either in the church to which you are, with which you are associated here in this area or your home church from which you come. Because this is a thing which must involve the church that's going to send you when the time comes. And it should not come as a surprise to them that you have made a decision like this. They're the ones that are going to send you. I have intentionally hedged this invitation around so it's very narrow. Now, if you feel that God would have you make that decision this morning for foreign service, if he'll have you, make him a promise and then keep it with integrity. Will you come forward? Rob's going to put these cards down here on the front with some pencils. I would like you to sign your name to that card right here and then go back to your seat. You may come now.